1: We are so excited to announce that Words Matter Media is partnering with Cafe Studios to bring you a new season of the Words Matter podcast. Cafe strives to inform its listeners about the most critical issues of the day.
2: Each week, Katie and I will do our best to bring facts and context to the often fraught political conversations that dominate our national discourse. We'll be speaking with an array of guests, including people who've made a great impact on American politics or who make it their business to understand what's really happening in Washington.
1: For now, you can continue to listen to episodes of Words Matter for free. In the coming weeks, the show will be available exclusively to members of Cafe Insider. And we hope you'll consider joining the Insider community, whose members enjoy a collection of podcasts created for engaged citizens around the world. You can head to cafe.com slash words to get two free weeks of membership. That's cafe.com slash words.
2: You'll get access to all future episodes of Words Matter and other exclusive content, including the Insider podcast co-hosted by Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Ann Milgram, former New Jersey attorney general, along with much more exclusive content. That's cafe.com slash words.
1: And now for this week's episode. Our guest today is a journalist, commentator, blogger, and best-selling author. While still an undergraduate, Brian Stelter created TV Newser, a blog about television and cable news. At the age of 22, he became a media reporter for The New York Times, and in 2013, he joined CNN as the host of Reliable Sources and the network's chief media correspondent, he also writes the nightly must-read and highly influential Reliable Sources newsletter. And his latest book is Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. Brian Stelter, welcome to Words Matter.
0: Honored to be here. Thank you.
2: So, Brian, as we always do, we disclose you and I are colleagues at CNN. You're full-time, I'm a full-time commentator. <laughs> and a commentator who loves going on your show, Reliable Sources, because it's it's basically in my wheelhouse of media and politics. Yes, it is. We want to get to the book. But first, who sits in their dorm and starts a newsletter while they're in college <laughs> about the TV news business? How did you get into this? What was the driving force? And most importantly, how are the babies?
0: Uh, the babies are great. They are ages three and one, and they're at the park right now having a, having a blast. But 15, 16 years ago, when I was very single, very child free, maybe not having the best first semester at Towson University, went home for winter break and decided to launch this blog that I had been thinking about for a while. I, I, I definitely had the idea for a while, but I launched it one semester into my time at school. And I did it to answer your question because I was just obsessed with television news then as I am now, just really interested in in why... CNN works the way it does, why Fox covers the story is, it does, you know, why MSNBC is the way it is. Just really obsessed with that topic. And thanks to the glory of digital publishing on the internet, anybody can be a blogger, anyone can be a publisher. So I started it up and it generated attention right away because there was no other blog obsessing over cable news. So Greta Van Susteren and others at Fox took it really seriously early on and started feeding me information, started feeding me tidbits. So even as I started settling in at college and started to find friends and, and have girlfriends and have, go to parties, I was still, you know, in the back of the room in the classroom, blocking away, uh, sometimes during class.
1: So you begin your book talking about being a New Yorker in the worst moments of the COVID-19 epidemic.
2: We're not a country that lives in fear. We are the country that tackles problems head on. The facts are the facts. And it hit the world. And we're prepared and we're doing a great job with it. And it will go away, just stay calm. It will go away, we wanna protect
1: And And you write the following, I I wanna quote from it. Like so many Americans, I'm shocked and angry. So what you'll get in these pages is not the stelter and the navy blue blazer that you see on CNN. I'm writing this book as a citizen, as an advocate for factual journalism, and as a new dad who thinks about what kind of world my children are going to inherit. The story is about a rot at the core of our politics. It's about an ongoing attack on the very idea of a free and fair press. It's about the difference between news and propaganda. It's about the difference between state media and the fourth estate. So excuse me if I swear a little, but I'm alarmed and you should be too. In the course of reporting hoax, you spoke to over 140 staffers at Fox plus 180 former staffers. Yeah. Did you get a sense of frustration and regret that they worked or had worked in a place that had become dangerous to democracy?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And this is really what links TV News or 16 years ago to 2020 and the pandemic. I had all these sources at Fox partly because I've been covering the network for so long. So a lot of people there trust me and confide in me and and share secrets with me. And some of them remember reading me 16 years ago. I, I think the difference this year and the reason why so many people were alarmed internally this year is because the biggest stars on Fox were, in many cases, downplaying the pandemic, downplaying the disease, suggesting that it was media hysteria saying that the Democrats were making too much uh, fuss about this and raising the alarms too loudly. And those quotes from February and March, we knew they were bad back then. Like We knew they were dangerous then. But to look back six months later, and now it has been pretty much exactly six months, those quotes are even uglier now. They're even worse now. that time has passed. Trump referring to the Democrats politicizing this as a hoax. Hannity doing the same thing on, on March 9th. You know, that damage, that damage is measurable. We will never know exactly. We can't measure it perfectly, but we know the consequences that this had.
1: So before we get into the details of what you learned and, and the excellent reporting in the book, do you believe that over the last six months, there are Americans who died because they believed the reporting on Fox News to be true and factual when it clearly wasn't?
0: Yes, but with the caveat that we can never measure it perfectly, we will never know for sure, and with the caveat that there's a lot of responsibility to go around, a lot of blame to go around, governors, mayors, a lot of responsibility to go around. A lot of folks were behind on this on this crisis. But I read letters that Americans across the country wrote to the FCC about this, even though the FCC, just for the record, does not regulate cable. They have no authority over cable, only over broadcast. But nonetheless, uh, people wrote to the FCC and said... This network has blood on its hands. Quote, Hannity has misled his elderly viewers. They are the most at risk. That's a Kansas City resident. Here's a Russellville, Alabama resident. Fox News is now costing the lives of Americans. So you had people writing into the government saying, my mom's being misled. My dad's being misled. They are, in, they are at risk. And I heard it from insiders as well. A top executive admitted to me, some of our programming was outlandish. The criticism of Fox this year is the most scathing that I've ever seen. And and to be fair, it's not evenly distributed, right? There are certain folks at Fox, including Tucker Carlson, who did take this virus seriously at the beginning. And perhaps that's just because of his anti-China views. But the, the coverage was, um, I don't want to say hit or miss, there were bright spots, there were positive spots, there were doctors on the air trying to get the truth out. But I think those voices were not as loud as the propagandists who were trying to defend Trump by saying that this was not that big a deal.
2: So, Brian, I want to take you back to 1996. (laughs) MSNBC had launched in July. Bill Clinton was running for re-election. I had brown hair and was the president's campaign (laughs) spokesman. Rupert Murdoch launched Fox News and put Roger Ailes in charge. Did anyone see the earthquake that Fox News
0: Mm. became
2: at that point? Set the scene for the landscape.
0: Right, right. At the time, you have all of these channels launching. CNN's the only cable news channel out there. MSNBC is launching as a partnership with NBC and Microsoft. There's also talk about ABC, maybe launching a cable news channel. CBS is wondering if they need to do the same thing. And Fox is viewed as the joke. Fox is viewed as least likely to succeed. That would have been the yearbook inscription. And of course, that derision and being counted out, being ridiculed, that was fuel. Right? That was fuel for Roger Ailes. It was fuel for Rupert Murdoch. It was fuel for the anchors and the stars. The network was very low rated for a few years, but it did gradually gain this audience. And it turns out Fox was the one to watch. Does that sound right to you, Joe, as someone who was... Living in the White House, Fox was like just a, a fly on the back, right? What was what was Fox in the name yeah?
2: To you? you know, it's interesting that we didn't take it very seriously. Frankly, we didn't take MSNBC very seriously at that point, <laughs> right? Either. They right. had no viewership. I think Fox. The only reason that we paid attention to Fox was, you know, Brit Hume was the bureau chief, and he was a respected guy in Washington in 1996, 1997. Not the partisan that he's become. But it was not, it never factored into our discussions about strategy.
0: Right, right. There's, there's something to be said for how Fox covered the Clinton impeachment versus the Trump impeachment. The network wasn't as obsessed with politics as it is now. And that's a reflection on our culture and what's changed in our, in our culture. There were certainly conservative voices on Fox. The network was always conservative at its heart. But it wasn't as extreme as it is now with conspiracy theories and just utterly unhinged commentary. And this is reflective of how the party has changed, right? Fox is chasing an audience that has moved further to the right.
2: So I want to talk about probably the two main characters in The Rise of Fox, putting aside their primetime personalities, Roger Ailes and Donald Trump. Describe that relationship. We, We had Gabe Sherman on a while back, and he talked about how If Roger Ailes had lived, he never would have ceded the power that the network did to Donald Trump. How did those two come together and then how did Trump become ascendant at Fox News the way he did?
0: Yeah. Many staffers at Fox said similar things to me. Many said they wished that Roger Ailes were still in charge today. Uh, of course, he died in in May of 2017, nine months after being pushed out of Fox in the wake of the sexual harassment scandal there. But Ailes left a power vacuum. He left a leadership vacuum. And it's never been filled since. Trump really exploited it, took advantage of that leadership vacuum, and was able to gradually take over the channel. But also, you know, there's something else going on. The, the network was catering to a pro Trump audience that wanted that wanted uh you don't want to say a safe space it's a little too cliche but didn't want to hear the hard truths about the chaos in the White House didn't want to hear about the dysfunction and the lies and the scandals and uh, and so we've seen this gradual evolution where it becomes the channel becomes trumpier and trumpier every year. I'd say
2: the one thing that sort of sticks in my craw is how the White House uses Fox News. Take the current press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany. She won't go on one of the other networks. She'll only go on Fox, and then the other networks replay what she said, which to me seems like they're disseminating propaganda. I mean, how does CNN or an MSNBC – I'm not asking you to speak for CNN – but how does a real news organization or a different news organization handle something like that?
0: Well, I think this continues to be a challenge three and a half years into the Trump presidency. You're right that, you know, when it comes to Fox and and Kayleigh, for example – Fox is state-supported TV. It's obviously not state-run TV, literally, because it's not financed by the state. But it's state-supported TV because they tend to get all the bookings with Trump. They get, you know, m- most of the interviews with President Trump on national TV go to Fox. Trump aides are constant guests on Fox. And so you, you do see the press secretary kind of holding these shadow briefings, uh, to use a, a Joe Lockhart term, uh, all over there on Fox during the day on the newscasts. And uh, she usually gets a, a pretty gentle Experience is the occasional hard question, but usually a lack of follow-ups. It it puts the rest of the press in this difficult position where you have to listen and pay attention to what's happening on Fox. It's where policy, it's where Trump is getting his policy ideas. It's where he's getting his personnel hiring ideas. But we have to be so careful not to just be repeating the propaganda. And I, I, I suspect you think, Joe, we, we're still not getting that that balance right, or getting that getting that dynamic right.
2: No, I I accept that it's hard. I think part of this is just envy on my part that I never had a security blanket like that to get around you press people. But (laughs) there there you go. (laughs) Uh, Katie, before I go off uh, my high horse, you take it for a minute.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So – Let's, let's take it back to Journalism 101 and apply those principles to the Fox infrastructure. In the book, you you talk a lot about how Fox doesn't have the same vetting and fact-checking systems in place that exist in every other news organization. So let's talk about how that works in real time. The Atlantic breaks a story about Trump and the military. Fox News correspondent Jennifer Griffin confirms, matches key parts of the story, and then is essentially taken off the air while primetime hosts and the pro-Trump on-air contributors attack the story and claim it isn't confirmed. John, I've spoken with two senior U.S. officials who were on the trip to France who confirmed to me key details in the Atlantic article and the quotes attributed to the president. My source, a former Trump administration official, told me when the president spoke about the Vietnam War, he said it was a stupid war. Anyone who went was a sucker. The president would say about American veterans, what's in it for them? They don't make any money.
2: The Governor, I got to get your reaction to a story we've been covering for a couple of days. Uh, the Atlantic, which is owned by big fans of Joe Biden, uh, and a, a piece in The Atlantic was written by Jeffrey Goldberg, who's a big fan of Hillary Clinton and, and uh, Barack Obama, not so much Donald Trump, used anonymous sources to claim Donald Trump made remarks about fallen heroes. Well, this story is utterly phony. And I've heard people say, well, it's been confirmed because other people have confirmed it. Who do they confirm it with? The same unnamed anonymous sources. That's not a confirmation. That is simply an affirmation of the original lie.
1: Take us inside Fox. How does that work in real time?
0: You're getting to what's really broken at Fox, which is there is not this kind of infrastructure to say, "Okay, we've just matched a really important story. This is a priority of the network. We are going to make sure that Jennifer Griffin is on at three, and again at five, and again at seven, and again at nine, because that's what would happen at a CNN. That's what would happen at most major news outlets. Her reporting would drive the day, or at least drive the the next few hours. She would be on the air sharing her information. Instead, what happened is she was put on, she was on the air at 3 p.m. She reported it. Mostly it went viral because of her Twitter feed, and then... Other programs later in the day downplayed the story, denied the story, focused on Trump's denial, dismissed it. Instead of letting the news drive the story, it was the Trump defense that, that drove Fox's coverage. And the reason that happens is, is, I think, a lack of leadership, a lack of news sensibility, a lack of news muscles. It's, it's like an athlete. When they stop working out, their muscles atrophy. That's what's happened to Fox's news muscles. The propaganda muscles have become really strong, and the news muscles not so much. Do you feel like that answers it, Katie? Or am I missing something?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good analogy that reminds me. I also just need to go work out after this, but um,
0: so <laughs> don't we all? Don't we all. <laughs> COVID six goals. months of a pandemic. Yeah, uh, yeah right. But I, I think the Jennifer Griffin story is a great example of this because there are these journalists at Fox who are trying. In an environment that's sometimes hostile toward journalism. I think the way that it's viewed from Trump world, Trump needs cheerleaders like Jeanine Pirro and trolls like Tucker Carlson on the air. And he needs the journalists to be sidelined. He needs them to be squeezed out. It's why he attacks Chris Wallace in one breath and then praises Sean Hannity in the next breath. He, he works the refs and tries to push out the news and promote the propaganda.
1: Yeah. So you credit Gretchen Carlson for- for her influential and pivotal role in the Me Too movement in the book. Explain how at almost the exact moment that Donald Trump was being coronated as the Republican nominee, Me Too was really gaining traction and transforming Fox News.
0: Look, I don't think we would have what we now know as an international Me Too movement without Gretchen Carlson. Yes, the hashtag by Tarana Burke, She had been using the term Me Too, but it had not become an international movement at the time that Gretchen Carlson sued in 2016, exposed Roger Ailes. That led the New York Times to go digging more into Bill O'Reilly. They found secret settlements into O'Reilly. The O'Reilly story led the time to go digging into Harvey Weinstein. And so you can start to see how these dominoes began to fall one by one in the wake of the Ailes scandal. It is incredible to think about how on the very same day Ailes was forced out by the Murdochs. Trump took the stage in Cleveland and accepted the GOP nomination and gave his acceptance speech. So literally, you have one bully boss of the GOP falling down. You have another bully boss of the GOP stepping up, taking control, taking command. It is Trump's party now. It is Trump's network now. And that's really, that's the foundation for what where, where we are today. Trump gave a speech where he said he's not going to lie. And of course, he was lying in the speech and he's not called out by his favorite channels.
2: There will be no lies. We will honor
0: the American people with the truth and nothing else. The people who should be holding him accountable because they're the people he trusts and respects, they went silent. Not, of course, entirely, but mostly silent, right? And I think that's how Fox has hurt him when they've tried to help him. When Sean Hannity tries to help Donald Trump, he's oftentimes hurting him through conspiracy theories and nonsense and, and, BS narratives. It's an interesting thing. What would have happened in the Trump presidency if Fox hadn't surrendered? I mean, that, that's a word that comes from the book, from one of these uh, one of these many sources. It was an anchor at Fox who said to me, "We surrendered to Trump. We just surrendered." And it's interesting to think what would have happened if they hadn't.
1: I really I'm, I'm thinking more about your analogy about f- flexing the muscles of the, the propaganda machine versus the traditional news values and building out that infrastructure that maybe would have once existed that would have prevented what happened with the with the Griffin confirmation. Do you think that Fox is building a muscular infrastructure post Gretchen Carlson and me, too? Do you think that they are now better prepared mm. to handle it? Based on what they've been through, or you think it's so, back to business as usual? Right, in
0: terms of culture, in terms of yeah. the culture of the place. I think there are significant changes that, that, that can't be denied in terms of um, hotlines that are in place, uh, company councils that are in place. There are clear changes that were made at the network. That said, after I finished Hoax, after it was off to the printing press, Ed Henry was suddenly fired at Fox for sexual misconduct. He's denied their claims, but this was clear uh, enough to Fox that they fired him in a matter of days after a complaint was lodged. There have been rumors about Ed Henry for years. There have been gossip about Ed Henry for years, and here in 2020 he was one of the you know the biggest news stars. Uh, Boss Suzanne Scott loved him, and there he goes gets fired. It points to a continuing problem. It it, it points to something as as. Former Fox anchor, now CNN anchor, Alison Cameron has said, this rot that seems to be at the core of the network. And you can't help but wonder, is that, is that because it was founded by someone who was a predator, you know, someone who was abusing his staff, Roger Ailes. And what can be done to clean up that stain?
2: So, Brian, both you and Katie are too young to remember when news actually lost money.
0: Oh, this will be good. As a
2: matter of course. <laughs> it now is a big moneymaker maker. Talk a little bit about how Murdoch's thirst for revenue drives Fox.
0: That's definitely one of the themes and hoax. It it came through loud and clear in my interviews with staffers who said, don't think of this as a network. Think of it as a profit machine. And then everything makes a lot more sense. The network's on a path to $2 billion in profits, far more than CNN, far more than MSNBC or really any other cable channel out there. Some of the sports channels are, are complicated. But in terms of the news business, Fox has perfected how to make it a business. And when I asked sources, you know, what about Laughlin Murdoch? He's the CEO of Fox Corporation. He's going to be, he's going to be running this thing for decades. Where, where is he? Why, why is he not trying to improve the content? Why is he not trying to make sure that dangerous conspiracy theories don't get on the air? And, and the answer time and time again was he cares about the business. He, he wants it to keep minting money. He's indifferent to the content. And by the way, if he disagrees with that, he should say so. He never talks about Fox's content. He rarely ever gives interviews about this stuff. He is a lot like his dad. He doesn't want to be bullied by the so-called liberal media. He doesn't want to appear to give in to left-wing ad boycotts. He has this alliance with the Tucker Carlson's uh, of the world and is focused on the bottom line. It's not that other networks don't care about profits. Of course, they do. I think there's just there's more of a fixation on the finances at Fox than elsewhere.
2: Well, let's talk about the, the money generators, the prime time hosts, and I guess the Fox and Friends hosts in the morning because that's a big money maker. How do you explain Sean Hannity, who in my view is not a particularly bright or studious person rising through talk radio? Tucker Carlson, who used to have a show on CNN and was somewhat reasonable. Laura Ingram, who again came out of talk radio. Why did these people become such huge money generators?
0: You know, I think it's, it's a, it's a long-term story, right? It's what you're alluding to. It's, a, it's this decade-long story. Hannity goes from Huntsville, Alabama to Atlanta. Then he gets plucked uh, by Roger to come to New York and host a TV show as well. He's got radio. He's got TV every year, gaining more popularity, gaining more ground. And then every few years, getting, getting fatter contracts to the point where he's, you know, he's up to 40, $45 million a year in, in the case of Hannity. I think it. It it largely has to do with this increasing sense that the right wing in America does not believe anything but Fox and talk radio, does not trust other sources. And that gives Fox and talk radio more and more power. It gives them a more and more loyal audience and uh, more and more of an opportunity to profit from it.
2: You talk in the book, and I think one of the most interesting characters at Fox is Shep Smith.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: To so those who have not been reading about it, have not read the book, he left Fox because he felt like Fox had become something different than he started 15 years ago. So recently, I asked the company to allow me to leave Fox News. After requesting that I stay, they obliged. Under our agreement, I won't be reporting elsewhere, at least in the near future. It's been an honor and my pleasure. Even in our currently polarized nation, it's my hope that the facts will win the day. That the truth will always matter, that journalism and journalists will thrive. I'm Shepard Smith, Fox News, New York. Talk a little bit about
0: that. Well, yes, yeah, Shep is Shep is the anti Sean Hannity. He's the anti Tucker Carlson. He is. He's a newsman who who doesn't really care that much about politics, and certainly doesn't have interest in in the pro Trump propaganda. And he was just squeezed out year by year as the channel became Trumpier. He was the three PM anchor. He was being paid fifteen million dollars a year to anchor the three PM hour. That is a <laughs> astonishing amount of money. But Roger Ailes was known to overpay, and he valued having someone like Shep there to uh, say, "Look, this is my this is our news anchor. This is our news star." Don't you call us a right-wing network? We have Shep Smith here. And as Trump lied more and more, Shep called it out more and more. Shep got angrier and angrier. Shep showed it on the air sometimes. And I think alienated so many viewers, ticked off so many viewers, and frankly, so many of his own colleagues that he felt very isolated, very alone at Fox. It's remarkable that he signed a new deal in uh, early 2018, a three-year deal. And then went to his agent in the summer of 2019 and said, get me out of this deal. You know, that goes to speak to how the Trump years, what's the word? He was getting suffocated, I guess is the word. He was getting suffocated. It was getting harder and harder for him to go on the air and try to fact check what was going on, try to call out the indecency that was happening elsewhere. To the point where he couldn't take it anymore. That's how his friends and family describe it. He's not talked publicly about why he left, but I hope he does. He's about to start a show on CNBC. And I think uh, viewers would benefit from hearing about what it was like for him inside Fox.
1: I do have to put a tiny asterisk on Joe's point about uh, news as a money maker. Although <laughs> Brian and I both were perhaps not around when it was a money loser, I fear that our generation is also witnessing the loss of money and local journalism entirely. And and I fear that we're on a path where the Foxes of the world will will take over entirely and and local journalism might get swallowed up. But hopefully that won't happen. So what happens to Fox in a post-Trump world, Brian?
0: Oh, boy. (laughs) So there's different views of this inside Fox, different theories, one is that uh, if Trump loses the election, he'll try to launch Trump TV. He'll try to compete with Fox. I think it's, it's plausible, but I think Fox is bigger than Trump. I think Fox has such a monopoly position that it would be hard to peel a lot of viewers away. He would obviously peel off some, but not a, not a big proportion of the audience. But that's a concern. That's a question internally. I think in an alternative scenario, you could see Trump having a show on Fox, right? Why compete with the, the market leader? Why not join them? But you know, Fox has always benefited from being in the opposition. A lot of folks there say it's better to be in the opposition, meaning have a Democrat in office, than it is to uh, have to defend a uh, Trump or a Republican uh, all day. So I think Fox so just fine, just fine in the, in the Joe Biden years if Biden wins the election. You know, if anything that's that's a better position to be in if you're Fox. And this all goes back to like having a market, having control of them in the marketplace, right? So that you win either way, right?
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's easier to throw bombs than to put out fires.
0: I remember, remember uh, in in the the shock of AOC's election that night when she won her her primary. And then of course, she she took office in January of 2019 in the House. And I had a Fox producer text me and say, thank you, Queens. Like, thank you for AOC, you know, Queens (laughs) and the Bronx, right? For certain producers and stars at Fox, it was a gift to have this so-called squad, to have these new characters in the drama. Because that that is one way to view it. It's characters in a drama. These freshman congresswomen coming into office, talking about a Green New Deal. I thought it was so revealing, that research that came out in March of 2019 that said... Republicans have heard more about the green new deal than Democrats. It's a democrat idea, right? From from these lawmakers, but Republicans have heard more about it, mostly because of Fox and and right-wing media, and they hate it. And then most Democrats have only heard a little bit about it and they just want to know more. And that is the asymmetric intensity at the heart of our politics.
2: So I think it just one comment on the future of Fox without Trump is the Republican primary for 2024 either if Trump wins or doesn't win, is going to be played out on Fox, not in caucuses, not in primaries. Fox will be the the largest role. Let me finish by pushing forward here, Brian. Give us your take on the 2020 presidential campaign, how it's been covered, what lessons have we learned from 2016, and what mistakes are we remaking in 2020?
0: It's a big, it's a big question, Joe. We can do a whole hour of reliable sources on this. I think that uh, a couple things stand out to me right away. One is there's a difference in the way polls are treated and handled. Maybe even an overcorrection. But there's this awareness that polls are not the end-all be-all, that they, they can be flawed, that they're a snapshot in time, that they should be treated and, and covered accordingly. So I think that in terms of what's been learned from 2016, I think there's more sensitivity around polls and how they are covered. I think there's uh, more awareness of free media airtime, right? And, and if Trump's holding an event, it's not automatically newsworthy. If he's ranting and raving, saying the same lies over and over again, the news is the lie and not the fact that he's speaking, then there's definitely more awareness of that. And I think there's a, a great overall sense, maybe not in, in the Fox world, but in the rest of the media world, that the democratic values are being debated. There are some basic, that the stakes are very high and that the basic fight here is, is uh, well you, you tell me, 20, 2008, 2012, doesn't feel like we were arguing about core democratic values, right? We talked about healthcare and talked about immigration, but it feels to me as we see these authoritarian tendencies from Donald Trump and his attempt to mix his personal business and his his government business, it's more fundamental. These issues are more foundational about our house than they were in, in past election cycles.
2: Well, we, we can do an hour on that. I'm sure. But, no, I think
1: uh. I think that's exactly right, and I think we're we're seeing it every day in an, a new iteration. I mean, the DOJ just stepped in in the defamation suit against Trump, and I think that's a part part and parcel of of your broader yeah. point, Brian.
0: This creeping authoritarianism. This yeah. This sense of what kind of country are we at its core? Trump's put all of this into the conversation. He's put all of this into the campaign. And in in some ways, that's a great thing. In some ways, (laughs) it gets us debating the core issues that matter most.
1: Sure. I I think that's right. Well, look, to our listeners, the book, again, is called Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. It's a fantastic read. And if you like you. audiobooks, it's a great listen. Brian himself narrates it. Check it out. You'll learn a lot about politics and journalism and cable news, all of the stuff we talk about here on Words Matter. Brian Stalter, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian.
2: As we mentioned, you can listen to the podcast in this feed for free for the next few weeks, but it will soon be available exclusively for members of Cafe Insider. To join and get two free weeks, head to cafe.com slash words. That's cafe.com slash words.
1: That's it for this week's episode of Words Matter. Your hosts are Joe Lockhart and Katie Barlow, and the executive producer is Adam Levine.
2: Words Matter is produced in association with Cafe Studios. The executive producer at Cafe is Tamara Sepper. Audio production by The Hanger Studios.
0: Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.